It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting our podcast experience. In this episode, we're going to hear from Dr. Walter Wittich. He's a professor at the School of Optometry at the University of Montreal in Canada. I'm really interested to speak with Walter about the research he's doing for sensory loss, in particular visual impairment, as well as hearing loss, and how people rehabilitate from those sensory losses. He also does a lot of work with assistive technology, which is always something I like to talk about. So, Walter, thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Hello, John, and thank you for having me. You are up in Canada at the University of Montreal. You're an associate professor in the School of Optometry. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yes, I've been here for about seven years now, and it's going well. So what happens at the School of Optometry as far as the scope of your work? Well, the School of Optometry sort of has two main missions. One mission is more clinical, meaning we train optometrists. Uh, we're, the, we're one of two optometry schools in Canada, and our program is mainly francophone, so we actually teach in French, and we produce you know, a lot of French-speaking and bilingual optometrists up here. And the second mission is more a research mission, meaning we are trying to push forward the frontiers of science in vision science, in normal vision, in uh, cerebral vision, you know, what does the brain do, what does the eye do, and specifically we have a graduate program in visual impairment and rehabilitation, and I'm currently the graduate program director for that vision rehabilitation program. Well, as you can probably tell by the name of the podcast, I'm interested in talking to you about vision impairment and adaptive technology. And I think you also work in the sensory loss area too, maybe more, more general than just optometry. Yeah, I, my specialty actually is deaf blindness. So I've always been very interested in what happens when vision is not the only sense that is in trouble especially because, you know, we use all other senses to compensate for any kind of impairment. And I've always found that very, very interesting to see what happens. Yeah, well, I just warn you now, I don't speak French at all. So uh, let's just keep this in English for uh, purposes of me. Works for me. Tell me about what you've what you found in the sensory loss thing. What happens when vision or hearing is not the only thing that is in trouble? So the my starting point was that when I was doing my own graduate studies, like when I was doing my master's and my PhD, I was really interested in more the psychology of vision loss. And so what ended up happening is that I, I sort of I studied perception and I wanted to know what happens to people's perception of their reality, of their world around them when this visual interface with the world is changing or falling apart or it is completely absent how do you create a sense of the reality around you so that was my starting point was actually in psychology and then as i learned more about it i got interested in measurement and i was very curious about how do we actually assess vision and vision loss you know, I've always found it really interesting that when you go into a health situation and you're being assessed by an optometrist or by an ophthalmologist, 
then you do these tests that have very little to do with real life. You read black letters on a white chart, but it turns out that life is not black on white. Right? So when you're running around in the world, uh, that's not what you do all day. Uh, and so I've been really fascinated how people handle this when their vision is changing. And then what happened during my doctoral studies is that I had this amazing plan that then all fell apart. But in the end, what happened is that I was trying to see how we measure the visual field. And so I was looking for people that had a visual field impairment. And that's how I met the very first person that I knew that had Usher syndrome. And so here are people that have a vision loss, but they also develop a hearing loss with this. And that's when I woke up to the fact that life is complicated. And it turns out one impairment at a time, that's nice and dandy. We do a lot of research on this and that many of our services are designed and laid out for having an impairment. But then when suddenly a second one comes along, this gets very tricky. And so that was the moment when I decided that my career, my research career, is going to look at the more complicated things to see what happens when more than one thing falls apart. You know, for you or for any of your listeners, if you're using devices that talk to you, whether that is a talking clock, you know, a scanner, there are many devices for vision loss that will use text-to-speech or that will simply speak information to you, like the time. You rely on your hearing because that's really yeah. the whole point. It's the same with this podcast. The, the post podcast is only possible because you and I can communicate with each other by hearing each other. Mm -hmm. There are probably not that many podcasts out there that talk about deafblindness because that's not necessarily the public that would go for podcasts. If they do, we'd have to figure out ways of making them somehow accessible. Yeah, it would also be hard to have a podcast about deafness too. Well, I, you know, it, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I've never looked into it, but you would have video logs, you know, that people will use uh, the the beauty of FaceTime by now communicating with each other visually. Right. If you use sign language, off you go. YouTube yeah. is your friend. Yeah, yeah, but in in my case, where with with vision loss, uh, I am. I'm very comfortable in the audio format. We, we could be doing video as well, but just for other reasons that it just complicates the whole podcasting process and makes it more complex anyway. The, the audio is, is, is easier to do. And for me, it's also all I really want is the audio. So uh, there, there, there are occasions where the video stuff would either get in my way or I may miss some visual cues. So I'm real comfortable in the audio environment, and I do rely on my ears for a lot of communication. Yeah. Do you use your hearing at all for mobility, for example? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I find this interesting. It's a, a, a research project that we're working on right now that because many people with visual impairment rely so much on hearing and sound during travel, uh, we're doing a survey right now where we're looking at people that may have experiences on how their mobility has changed through people wearing face masks. For example, it's harder sometimes to figure out where somebody is standing in front of you 
if they're wearing a mask because the sound is changing. Mm -hmm. uh, for some people, it's harder to communicate with their guide dog because the guide dog will not hear them the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, for those people who actually generate sounds that they use for echolocation, suddenly clicking of your tongue, for example, doesn't work the same way anymore. So I'm not against ma uh, mask wearing. I'm very much pro-mask. I'm also looking for new ways of how we can incorporate this kind of knowledge and experience into rehabilitation services because people still need to be able to get around. Yeah, I'm pro-mask as well. And I've talked to some other people with, with visual impairment and they've said a similar thing where the mask is important. We need to be wearing that. But at the same time, it's it makes communicating for, for people with sensory losses, um, notably, uh, in my case, vision, where they're muffled sounds, you can't tell where they're coming from, or just it, it creates some other issues that weren't really, we didn't really think about that going into it. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And some of these challenges are still, still emerging. You know, it, it takes lived experience for people with sensory loss to go through this for a while to actually be able to clearly also define and articulate what the problems are. You may know something's not working, but you may not know why. And that may just take some time to think about and to live it and to talk to other people about it uh, until we come to, oh, look, here's a challenge and here's a potential solution. How can we handle it? That's my life. That's what I do as a researcher. When it comes to sensory loss in general, is one sense more or less difficult to accommodate for the loss than, than others? It's funny that you ask this because that is actually an exercise that I do with my students in one of the courses that I teach. And my example is that if I would force you today to give up a sense, vision or hearing, and you would have to let go of one of the two, which one do you think would be easier to let go? And the thing is that the majority of the students that don't have any experience really with sensory rehabilitation, most sighted people choose hearing, to let go of hearing, because they can't imagine a life without visual input, because mm -hmm. it is such a dominant sense. But the thing is that at the same time, I tell them that this course that I'm teaching right now, if everybody would close their eyes, I would adjust a little bit on how I teach, but we would still be able to communicate. If you turn this around, if you would give up your sense of hearing, compensating for this change in communication is an entirely different challenge. I don't think that one is harder than the other. I think that this depends very much on the kind of the person. Uh, I'm also not even going to limit it to those two senses. You know, losing any kind of sense can be devastating. Uh, people that use smell or taste, if you give up flavor in your life, food becomes mechanical. If you lose your sense of balance, mobility becomes a nightmare. People that lose their sense of pain don't actually live as long as the rest of us mm -hmm. because pain is a mechanism that protects us. Right? So losing any sense, I think, can be quite devastating. But the thing is that there are things we can do. The question is more, can we find a way for you to cope and to overcome and to compensate? And sticking kind of in the sensory general category here for loss, are there, are there indicators that people will be more or less successful in their rehabilitation for the loss? 
That is a little bit the million-dollar question, because in an ideal world, we would be able to have these clear predictors. You know, if somebody has a certain level of impairment or a certain age or a certain openness to new experiences, you know, there are many, many different variables that we really could be measuring. Something that I have learned over the years to appreciate, because it is something I cannot measure, is clinical intuition. And so I have colleagues and collaborators that tell me that they know if this is going to work or not within the first two minutes of the first appointment with a client. I've always had trouble with that statement because it's such a reductionistic way of looking at an individual. But over time now, I'm starting to understand what this clinical intuition is maximizing and is focusing on. I think that the, there are very specific individual characteristics in people that are resilient. And I think that this resiliency is an incredible uh, value if you are going through a process of rehabilitation. Yeah, sure. Because it's going to be hard. This is not pleasant. It's not something that, you know, people really say, oh, yeah, you know, rehabilitation, that's really going to be fun. <laughs> uh, and, you know, many people don't even know what vision rehabilitation is. If you get knee surgery, then it's kind of intuitive that you're going to do some rehabilitation to rebuild your muscle, strengthen your joint, regain your balance and all of that. But if you develop a vision impairment, you know, if that's macular degeneration or anything else, really, you may hope that, you know, you're going to rehabilitate to be the way you were before. And in many cases, that's not the case. Now, the way I answer this is that I say, you may not see the way you did before, but you will still be able to do many of the things you did before, just not the same way that you did them before your vision. Example is reading the newspaper. You know, a lot of people are just, Oh, you know, I want to open this newspaper, sit on my balcony, Sunday morning, cup of coffee. You will still be able to read the newspaper if I have a visual impairment, but you may do it through text-to-speech. You may listen to it. You may do it in a magnified version. You may access a large print version or an electronic version. You know, there are many other ways of doing something. It may just not be the way it was. And for many people, that's very frustrating because it's a... It's something you need to get used to and an old expectation you may need to let go. Yeah, I can relate to that. Do you think, like, uh, have you have you seen people that have lost the sense of vision immediately, overnight, so to speak, versus somebody who has, like, macular de- degeneration or something that takes time and it's kind of a, it's a slow process and they know they're going through the process? Is there is there a difference in, in those people? Yeah, I think that the easiest way to think about this is that if you've ever had the experience in your family or in your circle of friends, there are people that may take years to die because they have a progressive disease and it slowly robs them of their life. And there are other people that have a car accident and it's over that day. And so now you talk to the family and you say, you know, would you rather have that time to say goodbye and all of that? And the thing is that, again, it's sort of a Sophie's choice. You know, neither one of these is great. 
you can spend years and years in mourning for something that may not come for some time. And it may ruin a lot of life because you're just going through this process of letting go. Or you can rip the Band-Aid off and hear it, it's done, and now you move on and you get over it. But then, you know, you didn't have time to prepare. Again, I don't have a good answer for you. I think that it's very much a personal kind of choice of what might be easier for people. I am not living this, right? So I am not visually impaired, and I can't give you a lived experience opinion here. If I, you know, if I imagine other moments in my life, I am more of a bandage torn off kind of a guy. I'd much rather get over it and get on with it. But, uh, you know, that's, um, that's me talking without experience. Mm -hmm. When we get there, I may change my mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, mine was uh, overnight, so to speak with, um, bacterial meningitis. I, yes. I went to sleep and woke up, uh, several days later and, and that among some other things was what was different about me. Well, you have to develop a different kind of identity. Right? You have to become this new person. You really do. And I, I did. And there, it, that, that also takes some time to develop that other person, just like it took some time to develop the person that I was, mm -hmm. that it, mm -hmm. it takes, it just takes lived experience in life to reimagine those things and recreate situations that are uh, different um, after uh, after the vision loss than it was before. There's also a pretty hefty amount of mental things that happen. Um, denial, <laughs> yes. denial being one of them. Denial of mm -hmm. of the existence of this. When it happened for me, I was uh, was 19 years old, and up to that point, I, if you ask me how I was doing or how I was, I mean, I, I was 10 feet tall and bulletproof, so you know nothing could slow me down and, until it did. The, the time that it takes to work through all that is, is going to be different for everybody in the resilience or other aspects that, um, that help through that are, are going to be different for everybody. But for me, my, my family and all the people around me were very important. And I suspect the people are, that are more successful with uh, rehabilitation have a pretty good network of, of people around them to facilitate that. See, yeah, this is an interesting point because resilience is a weird one. You know, resilience is in part inside you and in part around you. It is that network that holds you together. But, for example, don't underestimate the importance of your own mental health in the process. There are people that simply get sucked into anxiety or depression or both of them. That's always great fun as well. Yeah. And they may be surrounded by all sorts of forces and people that can help them. But if their mental health does not allow them to take advantage of those resources, then all of that's going to go to the wayside. And also these, they find themselves first in a place where they have to rediscover and, and rebuild something on the inside before the rest becomes useful. And it's sometimes very unpredictable. There is something that we call rehabilitation readiness. Many rehabilitation professionals at the beginning will again use this clinical intuition to come to this judgment of whether or not they can make a difference with this client. And ideally soon, right? Because many times you don't get 
days and days and days, but maybe you just get an hour or two. So how do you get the furthest in this time? And if you're face-to-face -face with somebody who is in denial, who may be stubborn, who may want various things, but in an unrealistic way, now what do you do? And so I've actually seen a colleague of mine do something really wonderful in this case. She decided to use a bit of reverse psychology, and she said, why are you here? And this person says, well, you know, so-and-so sent me, and so-and-so referred me, and my family thinks that I need this. And my, my colleague said, well, do you think you need this? And the client didn't have an answer. And so my colleague said, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to go home now, and you come back when you think you want to be here. But until then, I've got nothing for you. Because rehabilitation is something where the person who is being rehabilitated is likely the most important player in the game. This is the person who carries the responsibility, but who also gets to live the benefit of all the outcomes. So if that player is not engaged, we can all stand on our head and shake our toes. It's not going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some people have referred to me as stubborn before. So I can relate to some of those kinds of situations, but I, I think resiliency can be, can be learned as well. It's probably a lot of what's already inside, but for me, at least the, uh, the network I had and, and the, the motivation and things around me were, I think I was pretty motivated on my own, but there are, there are times where you have, you, you know, things don't go like uh, you want them to. So learning through all those types of things, it, it takes a lot, and it takes a lot of time. Yeah. I would also say that there are these moments that are sort of key critical moments. With many of our older clients, you know, when things are slow and progressive, yeah, you get by and you manage this, and maybe once in a while you hide your impairment. But then a key moment occurs. Something happens that they are not able to do anymore, but that they really want to do. Uh, one of my favorite examples is always reading to your grandchildren or doing something with your grandchildren that may require you to see something. And suddenly you can't because your vision's not that good anymore. And so they show up for us in rehabilitation and they say, you know, can you help me with this? And they discover at this point that not only can we help you with that one thing, but we can help you with 20,000 other things as well, because the skills that you need for that and the tools and the technologies, everything that's available, will not just do that one thing you want to do, but it will help you do so many more things you may have already abandoned or given up. Mm -hmm. So, but it took a failure in something or, or you know, some key moment now, I'm using the example of reading to your grandchild because it's a relatively positive experience. But these key moments can also be something negative. This is somebody, uh, you know, crashing their car into their, into their uh, garage wall because their visual field loss is now at a point where parking the car is not as easy as it was 10 years ago. They knew that for 10 years, but they didn't do anything about it until there was a $3,000 bill on the table because they ruined the car. Mm -hmm. Also, this, this can be positive. This can be negative. Either way, it'll take you there. 
life will take you there when it's your time. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's for sure. Now we spoke on the phone prior to this conversation and you, you, there was a few things that you mentioned that I thought were, were really interesting. And in, in terms of denial, you were, you were mentioning, uh, somebody that was driving a vehicle and to their destination and got out of the vehicle and, and started using their white cane to, for mobility. And somebody was alarmed by that. <laughs> yes. I think we would all be alarmed by that. Uh, imagine you get on a bus and the bus driver has a folded white cane next to him at the seat. I think we would all pause for a moment going, what's going on here? The thing is that when you look closer at all the rules and regulations that come with visual impairment, not everybody really clues into the fact that this is a spectrum. Like people are not sighted or blind. There's much in between. People can have just a peripheral vision loss, but their central vision is fine. And so, you know, they may be running around with a white cane when they're traveling through stairs or doorways because they can't see in their periphery. But then they will sit down in the subway and open a book and read because their central vision is fine. Mm -hmm. There are people that are running around with central visual impairment whose mobility is perfectly fine because a lot of our mobility we do with our peripheral vision. But they can't recognize your face because the moment they look at you, you disappear. And this is difficult to explain to people that are living with normal vision. There are so many ways of how vision can be impaired. If you have albinism, your vision is not that bad in the evening. But during the day, if it is very, very bright, you can be situationally blind because the glare is somebody that something that somebody with uh, albinism cannot handle. So different, you know, different situations, different problems. And suddenly people think, oh, you're cheating or you're lying or whatever it is, because they can't imagine that somebody has a partial problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's where I live. I live in this, in the middle, somewhere in the spectrum. My vision's about 2300 in one eye and and zero in the Mm -hmm. other. And so I, I think the white cane is the international symbol. For, mm-hmm. for visual impairment. I think most people understand that. I do think that people can be confused by um, somebody like me that may or may not use a white, or let's say I ha- I'm using a white cane, and then I get on a bicycle by myself and ride around the uh, block. That seems like those that doesn't match. That doesn't equal each other. Mm-hmm. And the clinician in me would agree with you. Because there are, there is a reason why you have that mean, because there are sections of your vision that are not fully functional. So if you ride your bike and there's a pothole that falls into that area that you don't see well, you're going to drive smack into it, ruin your bike, flip over, and God knows what you're going to break. Uh, now, as long as you don't hurt somebody else, you know, it's your choice what you do with your life. Mm-hmm. But if you fall on somebody else's child while you're doing that, then there's a problem. There's, there's a really interesting concept that I've come across a little while ago called the dignity of risk. This came up in the context of COVID-19 because when you look at deafblind people that rely on tactile sign language for communication, the first couple of months of the pandemic were a disaster because they were totally socially isolated and cut off from any access to information because nobody wanted to touch them. And so if you, you know, how do you now do tactile sign language? People were suddenly wearing masks and wearing gloves and 
just to explain to a deafblind person mm -hmm. what a pandemic is and what kind of pandemic this is was not obvious. And so, uh, you know, suddenly this becomes a, a social impairment and a communication impairment, and it became very hard for the population. While we're on the deafblind thing, something else that we mentioned on the uh, our previous connection was how important the other senses are for someone with sensory loss. You know, for me, the how important, say, hearing is and mm -hmm. why people in my position are similar really need to take care of their other senses to make things go as long as we can. You know, I mean, anybody would be that way as well, but it's just so much more critical for someone with with the with the sensory loss. I think that the the topic of hearing in this context is important for all people that are visually impaired because it is going to be your main sense for compensation besides touch. And touch is not a distance sense. Right? You would really rely on hearing for information in the thing. It's you know, like you said, when you were nineteen you were ten feet tall and, and bulletproof. I think many of us go through life like this until things kind of start getting wonky and we experience aging. I can't blame somebody at the age of 25 for not planning when they're 70. I, I don't think anybody really does. Uh, and that's completely fine. But the thing is that if you step back and take look at your own life in this continuity and look at, you know, statistically... You should make it to around 80 something. So if we buy this idea that you're going to live a total of around 80 or something years, what a lot of our research is trying to do now is have people grow as old as they can with as much health as possible for as long as possible. So you're not just adding years, but you're adding quality to these years. And that the actual decline at the end is relatively short and steep, and then it's done. Now, if you look at somebody who lives with a visual impairment, hearing is key for all of those 80-something years. Uh, I often tell my students that if you're you know, in the vicinity of somebody who's wearing headphones, and you can tell which song that other person is listening to, that means this person's hearing uh, headphones are tuned too loud for them, and they are now inducing age-related hearing loss earlier. All right, they may only be 25, and they don't know right now, they don't care. But instead of having age-related hearing loss at the age of 75, they may have it at the age of 65 now, because they were burning this candle on both ends earlier. And so I'm trying to make people aware of looking at their health and their ability, whether that is your back, your legs, your ears, your eyes, your hands. You have one set, you know, one set of those. Take them with you for as long as you can. Yeah, I just turned the headphones down on my. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but you, when you when you said when you told me that, I, it really resonated with me. I I. Mm -hmm. I, uh, of course, everybody knows that, but knowing that and then actually practicing that or being, being aware of it and, and trying to take care of those kind of things, uh, it's not as easy as it, it is as easy as it, as it sounds, but I guess people just don't worry, just, just forget about it when everything's fine every, and when everything's fine, everything's fine, you know? 
Yeah, exactly. Life gets in the way. You know, we're doing okay. We're doing the thing. And, you know, many of us, I, I admit that sometimes I am that as well. Maybe we're just too lazy once in a while. You know, it's like on the list of priorities, ah, whatever, you know, it's not such a big deal. And that's, it's normal. You know, we all have to kind of figure this out as we go forward. And priorities do change as we get older. I'm different now than I was 30 years ago, for sure. Okay, I want to talk to you about assistive technology, too. You are the namesake of the uh, Wittich Visual Impairment Research Lab there at the University of Montreal. Do you guys work with assistive technology? We do. We work a lot with assistive technologies. We do a lot of evaluations, uh, and we work at times also with some of the companies that make these technologies, but we usually take the perspective of what does the user do with them? What does the user think about them? We do a lot of technology evaluations. So in the last 10, 20, 30 or so years, technology has grown by leaps and bounds and even in general, but I think it's grown for specifically visual impairment by leaps and bounds too. Would you agree with that? I think that technology has become the great equalizer. It now allows people with disabilities in general to do things that 20 years we could not have imagined. Uh, like you said, uh, for the visually impaired, this has taken huge steps forward because of things like text-to-speech. Uh, you know, voice synthesis has changed the, play, the playing field. Suddenly you can have access to print through scanners that are on your on your smartphone. Something else that I think is not to be underestimated here is mainstream technology because stigma plays a big role in the use of assistive technology and having devices that are now mainstream that are used by everybody has changed technology use a lot because you can run around using a magnifier on a telephone and nobody will think twice of it because you're using the same device everybody else is using. Yeah. So stigmatization has really changed as well. Yeah, and I think too, like you're talking about the the iPhone or mm -hmm. smartphones yeah. kind of in general, but I'm an iPhone guy, I'm an Apple guy, and, and the iPhone mm -hmm. really was groundbreaking for me when uh, in 2009 when I, the first one I had was the 3GS, which is when voiceover was loaded onto it. The, the phone I was using before, I mean, it was, pardon my French here, uh, Walter, but it was a piece of crap. And it was all hobbled together and just duct taped. The voices were terrible. It was slow. And then all of a sudden I get this iPhone that a lot of my friends have, and I can do most of the things that they can, like, overnight. And yeah. it really was just crazy how fast that the change was on, in particular with the iPhone. I, you know, I've now spoken to so many different people with visual impairments that share your perspective on the Apple product. Now, it turns out Apple is not alone in the technology market, and it turns out there are some other technologies that are sometimes more user-friendly in certain circumstances, uh, whether that is magnification or whether that is electronic access to things. You know. So, I, I agree that Apple has taken amazing steps. It's not the only option. You know, there are many other people that 
swear for certain things on other texts. Now, what's tricky for me is, you know, many people ask me, so what do you think is the best technology out there? And the thing is that today's answer may be contradicted by tomorrow's answer. Like you said, the, this is moving very quickly and it gets faster every single day. So I, I've given up trying to figure out what's best because really only what's best for you today. We may discover something else tomorrow you like better. Yeah, and that's also true for the, the different people, you know, where they are in the spectrum of, of vision loss in particular yeah. because certain things work for some people that, that don't work for others. You, you mentioned mainstream, and I think that really is just one of the, the best things that, that could have happened to accessibility is that it's going mainstream. And, and again, Apple, I believe, takes the approach before most of the other, you know, before Android, before really even before Windows and built in the accessibility features. Now they've they've they weren't great at the beginning and, and there's certainly areas for improvement. But the the fact that the weakest link built into all of Apple's products would be the visual or just the assistive technology stuff, uh, it works with almost everything out of the box. Before cool. I was buying the phone, I was buying software, I was buying other adaptive things to just to make this one thing work and with with in the case of Apple for me it's all there another thing that i think is fantastic is something like the voice assistant this is huge for people with vision loss you know you have your alexa or your all the all the assistive devices for everybody and that makes life easy for everybody but it in particular makes life easier for for folks with vision loss and that's about as mainstream as it gets too yeah for sure I think you've heard of this concept of equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility. It's a big topic now, uh, you know, in industry, in government, in funding, in research. This is a topic that's become extremely important. It's the golden era of progress for people that are somehow marginalized. I'm not saying we're there, right? But at least it has arrived at the table. Uh, and for people with disabilities, specifically for people with sensory loss, a lot of this mainstream technology has allowed them to even just have a voice in this discussion, to be present, to be engaged, to be represented. That wasn't even possible you know, some time ago. In addition to the Apple products, are there some others uh, that you normally work with in your lab? Well, the, it's again, the normally work with is very temporary because these technologies <laughs> come and go very yeah. quickly. Uh, we've spent some time evaluating the Eastside eyewear because we were actually funded by the company to run their clinical evaluation trial. Uh, so the bias in there that I will declare right away is that the research itself was funded by the company, but they were not involved in the conducting of the study or the, uh, the interpretation of the data. So, uh, a second uh, kind of technology we're working with right now is the OrCam. You may have heard of that mm -hmm. device. It's uh, a basically text recognition device that will read to you or will detect information in the environment. The reason that I'm specifically interested in the OrCam is because, again, it requires hearing for your compensation mechanism. And so for people that have a dual sensory loss, I'm interested in what level of hearing loss device can tolerate and still be able to be usable by the person with the dual sensory impairment. So I always 
try to take these devices into the non-optimal condition. You know, of course, it's going to work in the demonstration by the company because they will set up such a way that they can show their best possible outcome. And I absolutely support that because these are companies that are built to make money and to produce these things. And it is, without their support, we wouldn't have many of the technologies that are amazing for people with disabilities. But at the same time, you know, their life again is not black on white text. And so what happens when you're under dim lighting? What I actually find very interesting with the Orcam, I'll spill a little bit of the beans of one of the things that we're studying right now, is that the Orcam asks you to select your language, which is very interesting in the Canadian context because many parts of the country function in one or the other or both uh, official languages. So in Montreal, it's one of the places where people change language frequently, and you will see that many products that you can buy in, in Canada will have instructions and nutrition information and titles and things in both languages on the same package. But what happens is that if you use the Orcam on a cereal box or something like this, and you've set your language to English, then every time the machine encounters French text, it comes out all garbled because, of course, it's not English. Mm. So you have this back and forth between usable and non-usable information. Uh, and that's that's an interesting barrier to the use of the device in a context where people speak more than one language. So do you think that devices like Orcam can compensate for that? That is the question that I will ask them the next time I talk to them, because this was never part of their demonstration when they uh, loaned us this device, and we never thought of it either. Right? This is only something that has come up as we've been doing these uh, usability evaluations. So I'm curious. They may actually have a solution for this already, but if they do, I haven't seen or heard of it yet. I don't have any hands-on experience with the OrCam device. It does look pretty pretty neat, but I don't have one of those. I've used the eSight device though. In fact, uh, several podcasts ago, I had a, somebody from eSight on the podcast and we, we talked about the device and I've demoed it myself and it really is pretty incredible what they're able to do with that device. It didn't really work for me, which again is kind of where the whole spectrum thing comes in as to where some things work for some people and, and some not for others. Is that kind of the experience you've had? Or what do you think about the eSight device? I think that that is really the key. And I think that eSight has also found a beautiful way of building that this fact into their uh, marketing strategy. Because, for example, at this point in time now, you can rent the device for a while and you can try it out. Uh, to see whether this is the right device for you before you spend the money to purchase this. And I think that that's exactly the right way to do this because the device will work really well under certain conditions for certain types of people or certain types of impairment for those tasks that they want to do. But if you don't necessarily cleanly fall into those categories, then the benefit of the device may not be as large as it could be under other conditions. And that's important for you to figure out because the device is not cheap. And so before you take that step, I'm really glad that eSight has taken this 
option that people can rent the device, try it out for a few weeks, and then decide whether it's for them. And as I think you mentioned, this is kind of the golden era, or at least the beginning of all the inclusion and accessibility and things that are, are just, we're really going fast. And it's, it's a pretty exciting time to be involved in that. What, what, what do you see coming down the road with, with innovation and, and people getting involved in accessibility and all the, just all the cool things that are happening in the, in the world of assistive technology? Yeah, you heard me mention earlier that you know we are really interested in all of these patient-reported outcome measures. We pay more attention to the people that are using the devices, to the people that have lived experience. And so one of my favorite aspects of, of the change that is happening now is that there are people like you, that there are people like Sam Seavey from The Blind Line that are using media, social media, that are using the internet to accomplish various important things. First of all, they communicate about themselves. So there's visibility that this is in, that this is present. People with disabilities have to be present to be seen in order to be accepted. But it goes way beyond this. You guys also change the discussion by being very much directing the discussion. You are asking questions. You are in inserting into those questions what your priorities are. It is not about the, well, you know, the researchers sit in academia. We know best for what's good for you. Let us fix it. We're moving away from this old model. We're now moving into an era where you have citizen consultation, where you have advisory committees, where you do something that we call knowledge translation, where you bring relevant questions from the user into the research lab, where you bring the findings from the research lab back to the user, where you involve the clinicians and the service providers in this process. This integrated kind of knowledge translation is really the path to answer questions that are important, uh, that are not just interesting or fundable, but questions that are important to be answered. And to me, that's really um, a new direction that is very important. Uh, not all countries, not all places are yet happening at the same place for this, but I see that being the next big direction that will determine how successful we are to provide this equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility. Yeah, I think kind of what you're saying is it's it's almost like the companies or the people that are making these products are getting real-time feedback from really from the field, from the user experience, and able to really innovate and adapt things so much more quickly than, than we were before. So I think things like podcasts and, and YouTube videos and the internet and blogs and all that stuff really push that forward too. I, I agree with you on that one. I also think that, you know, you can think what you want about the pandemic, but oddly enough, it has really forced us to be progressive uh, on some of these communication fronts. You know, there are people that were trapped at home for the last something in a year that decided to create a podcast or that decided to do a video blog or that decided to do something on Facebook on a regular basis in order to focus what their priority is. You know, I think there's nothing wrong with this to even be a coping mechanism. 
something where you learn something, I learn something, and the people that are listening, hey, they may learn something as well. Mm -hmm. And I think this kind of team interaction, uh, we've changed how we communicate with each other as part of this pandemic. Yeah, well, you're talking to somebody that uh, you just described me. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I agree. Okay, Walter, I want to thank you a, a bunch for your time. It's been a really interesting conversation, and I did uh, learn a lot of things with my interaction with you. I hope that we can connect again down the road, and uh, maybe I can learn some some more things about uh, about how much I should have uh, the volume of my uh, my headphones and some other, <laughs> some other things that I, I should be doing. Where's the best place for people to find you and uh, what you got going on? So the three places I think that are good to look is you can start on Twitter, where you can find me at Walter Vucic. Um, another way of reaching me is by email. If you have a question, you know, go ahead. It's walter.witich at umontreal.ca. But the final thing that I will leave your audience with is that you know, many times when I engage in interviews and in podcasts and in, in TV shows also about vision impairment is that people often feel motivated that they want to do something. They want to get engaged. They want to be active and proactive. And so many times I tell them about the fact that the University of Montreal has a bilingual English-French graduate master's program in vision science, specifically for vision rehabilitation and visual impairment. And so people can study with us to either become orientation and mobility specialists, low vision therapists, or blind rehab specialists. And the program takes about 16 months. Part of it can be done uh, via distance, but the majority of the applied and lab courses are all done hands-on in Montreal. And if that is something that's interesting for you, reach out to me, find us through the University of Montreal website, it's a it's a cool career. It's a very exciting way of being. Thanks again for your time, Walter. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. And for a complete transcript of this episode, connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.